You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Hi, my name's Rachel Dean, and I make musicals for a living. Rachel Dean is a piano player, music director, and composer of musical theater. When she's not rehearsing with the cast of Hamilton or Moulin Rouge, Rachel is busy composing daring new projects like Medusa, On the Line, and The Anxiety Project. She's an ASCAP award winner, and her work has been performed around the world. Here's my chat with Rachel Dean. Who are you and what do you make for a living? Uh, my name is Rachel Dean, and I make musicals. How in the world do you make musicals? What a great question. <laughs> I still don't know. And I think most people who do it still don't know. Uh, I think about how, I mean, producers have been trying to figure out the hit formula for Broadway for decades. And they're still, like, they bet on what they think are great IPs, and then they end up being flops. And so it's kind of exciting that no one actually really knows what they're doing. I choose to believe it's exciting. It can be discouraging, but I, I think it's thrilling in a way. How did you get started in making musicals? How did, yeah. Where does it begin? It's such a great question. So I started taking piano lessons when I was six, and I started writing songs uh, when I was around 11 or 12. They weren't good. They didn't <laughs> rhyme. They were like, I'm a stray cat and I want a home. Not like that, but that That's a hit. kind of... Yeah, there it is. I should go right there now. Actually, I'll talk to you later. Um, <laughs> I think there is a musical based on cats. I can't remember the Dang name it. of it, though. You're right. I don't know. Yeah. Kittens? Yeah. It's probably called Kittens, yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I wasn't exposed to a lot of different kinds of music until high school because I went to a private Christian academy and I came from a pretty conservative religious family. So the music that I was exposed to was mostly worship music or like classical music that I was playing in my piano lessons. And then in high school, I got involved with the choir and the show choir scene and musicals. And I, I offered my piano playing to accompany all of those things that were happening, the choirs, the show choirs, musicals, jazz choir. And through that, I got to know some of these musicals. We did musical numbers in show choir, and then also we did, you know, actual musicals. And when, I think when the music staff figured out they had a resource that they could use in me. They started doubling the number of musicals they did every year. <laughs> so they're like, well, we have this girl who will always play. And so I don't have to do that extra like 20 hours of work a week. <laughs> um, but it was great. Um, we got uh, my sophomore year there. We got a, a director, a drama director who was just really excited about kind of pushing the envelope. And so we were doing these like Sweeney Todd's and chorus lines and things like that. Uh, how and old? I was... I, I was 15 or 16 when we were doing those. Some of that's yeah. pretty advanced subject matter, even if it's not specifically some, you know, advanced musical matter. Absolutely. Uh, sometimes both, actually. Yeah. Sweeney Todd is Sweeney not Todd's an not easy, easy. score to play. <laughs> um, but yeah, there were, for Chorus Line specifically, I told my parents, like, you really don't have to come. In fact, maybe don't. <laughs> but they came anyway, and they shockingly let me keep playing for musicals and staying involved in the arts. So I was super grateful for that. Um, so so musicals started filtering into my consciousness in this way, and, and the music that I was writing started to sound like musicals, even though I think my dream at the time, at 16, which who knows what they want to do at that point was to be like a singer songwriter type. And so when people would be like, Oh, that sounds like it could be in a musical. I would be like, no, it's not. It's my own thing. <laughs> nah. um, <laughs> and then I went to college for, I went to the university of Miami and majored in composition and uh, continued to play for the theater department there for their classes and musicals and 
sort of like fell into some happenstance collaborations with people that I was doing entirely outside of my studies. And it sort of gradually dawned on me that like, this is a really cool thing. It's an incredibly collaborative art form. So fun to get to work with all these people from different disciplines. Like I have no idea how lighting works or sound or a lot of those things or carpentry, but they're just like all different types of people that come together and make this thing. It was really an exciting thing to me. So these were theater collaborations, even though you were in the sort of standard music stream. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't anyone that I was going to school with. It was, uh, I worked at a theater nearby and they happened to know a writer who was looking for a collaborator for a project that she was doing. And also the son of the theater owners wanted to write a project. And so I happened to be the only composer that they knew. And they're like, hey, you want to do this? And me being 19 was like, oh yeah, totally. (laughs) Um, and I met one of my longtime collaborators, uh, David Brush, over an online initiative where um, the New York Public Library started hosting this program that essentially was like, we know it's really hard to find collaborators in musical theater, especially if you don't live in the heart of it in New York City. So they were posting prompts every two weeks by, quote, celebrity musical theater writers. And then lyricists could post as a comment on the page a lyric in response to the prompt and then composers could come and set the lyric um and that's how david brush and i met and we've been we wrote together while i was in college and then a couple years after it was three and a half years that we did all online work before we ever met in person really yeah and you guys have continued this collaboration to this day Yeah. So he's based in Ohio. I'm now based in New York and we've uh, spent time together when we get to do our shows places and they get to fly us out or whatever. But most of the time it's all remote. Wow. Is he in Cleveland? Yeah. He's in the Dayton Cincinnati area. Ah, yes. The theater district of Dayton. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's hopping. Really well known. (laughs) There's Broadway. Then just slightly to the left is Dayton. Yeah. I don't know why he was looking for collaborators. There must be so many there. (laughs) (laughs) huge wealth of them. Uh, So working with David and working on your own, was there sort of a a big break, like out of college? Was there something that really kind of made you think, you know what, I I can do this, some sort of an opportunity that came your way? That's such a good question. I can't tell if you're leading me or not, because there is the (laughs) the questions aspect of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I moved to New York, Uh, I moved here for grad school to go to NYU's graduate musical theater writing program, which is one of like the big, there aren't a lot of grad programs that do this. There are more that are kind of popping up, but this was sort of like the flagship one. And I, I kind of applied being like, I don't know if I really want to do this, but I do know that I want to be in New York because that's where the theater scene is. So if I go to grad school, that gives me two years to sort of make connections and I'm not pressured to find work right away because the music theater industry is a lot of word of mouth. And so if you don't know anyone, you're kind of dead in the water. Um, And so a week before I moved up to New York, I was at the beach with a friend and uh, one of the guys from the jazz program was there and he name dropped Alex Lacamoire, who was at the time, like he was the music director and orchestrator for In the Heights. And then he was the same for Hamilton, which had not really blown up yet. It hadn't premiered on Broadway, but it was at the public. So it was like, there were rumors of how great this thing was that was coming. Right. But I only knew his work from In the Heights and I was really excited. I was like, oh my gosh, you know him? And he was like, yeah, I'll tell him, I'll tell him that you're coming to New York. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm sure that's gonna be fruitful. <laughs> Not. <laughs> but then I moved there and Alex messaged me on Facebook, welcoming me to the city and congratulating me on the NYU program. And 
just offered to give any like tips or advice. And it was so kind of him. He's, he's just that kind of person who he was sort of, um, someone gave him his break when he was like 23 and he got to sub on the Lion King. And so he just kind of, I think really makes it a point to pay it forward to other young people coming to the city. Well, that's what I always hear about, about making it to New York is that everybody there is just so open honest and friendly and i'm being sarcastic because you definitely (laughs) never hear that you hear these horrible stories of people getting taken advantage of and being ignored so that's really something special when somebody like that reaches out to you and gives you that type of an opportunity absolutely yeah and i think there's like you said there's plenty of of not that there's plenty of people having their first encounter with a big for example broadway producer and it's so bad that they leave the business entirely (laughs) (laughs) um but this is not my experience at all it was just it was so incredible to have that contact point and he he invited me to come in uh during a lunch break of a hamilton rehearsal and and just show him what my abilities were on piano and uh one thing led to another and he eventually offered me a spot as a rehearsal pianist um, on the team of Hamilton, which was completely mind-blowing. Not something that I ever, like, it wasn't even on my radar to dream about, really, because I I was, like, a good pianist, but I didn't major in it in college. I wasn't good enough to be a performance major, but I worked my butt off while I was in college to, like, get those chops up, and 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 I think that really helped me get to a place where I could monetize it to the to the extent that now it is, you know, what I do for a living. You you are actually working with Hamilton now. You are doing as, as a piano rehearsalist. That's not the right. Thing. Yeah, rehearsal pianist. That you got it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds more accurate. Yeah, I mean, not in COVID times, of course, but uh, when things are going, yeah. Uh huh. What does that entail? What does being a rehearsal pianist mean? It differs widely for every show, as far as I can tell. So I I now am also on Moulin Rouge as a rehearsal pianist, um, and so for Hamilton, it's uh, every note in the score is written out exactly how it wants, you know, he wants it to be played. He's a very, uh, specific orchestrator, which I love. I think it's great. And, um, and part of it for Hamilton is, uh, sometimes it's beatboxing or sometimes it's banging on the piano because a lot of it is percussion based and not all of that translates well to the piano. So you're both playing the piano really percussively so that the dancers can feel what a beat kind of feels like when they don't have, you know, a drummer in the room. Um, And then also because of sort of the piecemeal nature of the vocals in Hamilton, where if like most of the time I'm working with ensemble people because they're on the stage all the time, they're doing tons of dances, but they're only singing like three measures here and then three measures there. And the music underneath kind of sounds like a hip hop loop because it's based on hip hop. And so what the pianist is also asked to do is to rap along and sing along as they play to sort of track (laughs) where we are in the song, which is absolutely hilarious. So I I like to joke that I'm one of the only white girls who gets paid to sing Hamilton. (laughs) I think we're going to need a sample of it. I told you I wasn't going to surprise you or anything, but this is it. I'm calling you out. (laughs) Give us a little sample. Oh my gosh. It's now that it's been like a year and a half though, I feel like I can't and I will embarrass myself <laughs> if I try to remember. This whole show's an embarrassment. It. Don't worry about it. Uh- <laughs> you're, you're in good company. Trust me. Anyway, I won't oh put God. you on the spot. Tell me Bless about you. some stuff that you are working. So you're, you're working with Moulin Rouge, you're working with Hamilton. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. assuming those are, I guess, for lack of a better term, your day job. Yeah. But you do things outside of your day job as well. You're developing shows, right? You're still working with David, for example. Tell me about some of those projects. Yeah. Um, so one of the first things that we worked on together, it was called The Anxiety Project. And it started out as um, 
a series of blog posts. We were looking for a subject to write about for um, the Crazy Town blog, which is run by another theater writer, Ryan Scott Oliver. And David came up with this idea of what if we solicit anonymous stories from people about how they deal with mental illness. And then we can take those and turn them into scenes and songs. And that's sort of how it started. And then we got such an amazing response from everyone. Um, they were just so raw and honest in, in the way they responded. And it was, it was really vulnerable and bold of them to trust us with their stories in this way. And so we ended up turning it into a book musical. And that just got its cast recording last January. So that was really exciting. We've, we'd done like a three-year-long collaboration with Phoenix Theater in Arizona and Arizona State University. And so we used those students to make the cast recording. Um, and that, that was great. It's great. And so now we have this cast recording that sort of serves as a calling card um, to show potential producers or potential colleges or whatever, like, hey, this is what the show sounds like in its ideal form. And then people are just more likely to want to put it on wherever they are. Is, is it your plan to mount the show yourselves? I mean, is it, is it, is it going to try and get to Broadway or off Broadway or something? Is that the idea? Sure. Yeah, I think I think the ideal home for this is off Broadway. It's it's more of a smaller, intimate show. I don't think it would work well on Broadway, but that is our dream for it to sort of have that path, and then maybe. There's, there's a question of like licensing and publishing and whether it would be picked up by a company that would then sort of take charge of all the materials and be able to rent it out to different theaters, you know, or we can just do that ourselves. We're not picky, but that would be sort of the dream is for someone to be like, we'll take care of this for you. Here's the money every time someone does it. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the questions I've always had about theater because uh, having worked in film, I know kind of the general process, you know, you basically write a script, you get the financing together through jump through a ton of hoops and things like that, investors mm -hmm. and all of that. You go out and shoot, you edit it, and then you distribute it. But theater is mm -hmm. a little bit different because you have to mount the show in order to get the money in. So somebody has to actually put it on. And I'm kind of curious how that, how does that business work? I mean, how do you, once you've written it and you've put this cast recording together and you put it out to producers, is it the producers are going to look to license it from you? I think that the, I, and this will tell you how little I know, but I believe that it's really just the job of the producers to raise the money and they might have connections with a publishing company, but the producers and the publishing company are not the same. There are like three main publishing companies or so that exist uh, for musical theater. And I, I think that you can like submit them to them through agents. Agents really help sort of like make all of the connections easier. If you have someone who's, who has the connections with the producers and with the publishing companies and, and whatnot. But a lot of it is, is just kind of lucking into the right person seeing the show at the right time, which as you mentioned, is difficult when you don't have the funds to mount the show in the first place. So right, it's a, a lot of, of a like catch chicken 22. and egg. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So is the idea that you guys have been putting on showcases throughout this time, is that the nature of the relationship with, was it Arizona State University? Yeah, with Phoenix that? Theater Phoenix and ASU. Theater. Yeah, they, I think they probably get funding from grants and such, and then they're able to bring in, Phoenix Theater is, is like an incubator of new musicals now. So they're sort of cultivating that reputation. They bring people in. And so then we don't have to worry about funding it ourselves because they they are putting all that up and they have the space and they can provide actors and everything. And so, and that, and then their, you know, audiences get to see new material and feel like they're being a part of the piece's development, which is really exciting for audiences. Right. So technically the show has been mounted. The show has gone live and it has its, you know, cast recording, as you say. So really 
at this point, it's whether or not other people are interested in bringing it to their town or for that matter to an off-Broadway stage, as you're saying. It's, it's just right. a matter of seeing if people would be interested in doing that. Yeah. And technically it has not had a full production yet. What it has had are what they call readings, which is just people standing at music stands, no sets, no really blocking or choreography or anything like that. Just really like stripped down. This is kind of what the material is. And then we've had some workshops too, which are sort of a stage between reading and production where there are more, maybe there are more instruments playing there's a little bit of blocking. We have some conceptual ideas happening of what this might look like if it was a full production, but we're not really spending any money on it. So those are so this, those are the two sort of steps. Those and like concerts where people are just not pretending that it has a narrative structure and they're just taking the songs and performing them kind of out of context. I'm going to roll back now and go back to the original idea for this. And for that matter, yeah. the original idea for any of your shows that you're developing because you've got a few you've got medusa um <laughs> amelia which sounds really interesting but amelia Earhart, and yeah i'm just kind of curious about about where these ideas are coming from how you're finding it i mean you're working with a partner uh mm-hmm. and i know that you're working with for example amelia Earhart. you're working with a story that we think we mostly know but how does that translate to a musical idea where do you oh. find the music that's such a good question. And it doesn't work for everything. Some things feel like they'll be a great musical idea and then they just aren't great. And then a lot of things, like every show that Andrew Lloyd Webber has ever done, like sounds so stupid when you pitch it. <laughs> but he, the man understands what ideas will translate. Yeah, a lot of, I mean, Sondheim too. Uh, Sweeney Todd on paper. Let's do a musical about like a guy who kills people and, and turns them into pies. It's just... <laughs> It's but I hard think to imagine. I think you're barking up the right tree, though. I mean, I would have thought, you know, let's do a, a, a whole musical about anxiety, about depression. I, I would, on, on paper, that sounds rise. like a horrendous yeah. idea. You know, especially yeah. because I think there's a huge, you know, my assumption, my assumption, my experience with musical theater is generally that it's considerably a happier place. You know, I mean, yeah. we're looking at a lot of Disney <laughs> production. We're looking at a lot of, you know, right. happy, jokey things. And that's great. And it works very well. But to take on a serious subject that affects a lot of people, that mm-hmm. has a certain element of reality to it, that's even, again, it doesn't jump off the page. Right. So I, I guess I usually conceptualize musicals as, as serving one of two purposes, usually. There can be some overlap, but usually I find that you're either writing a piece that's escapist, so it's just entertaining, it might be heartwarming, you'll laugh, you might cry, whatever, but you get to escape your reality. And then there's the other stuff that's, and that's, I think this is, kind of becoming increasingly more popular, particularly since 2016, but I think there was sort of a trend towards it. And it's the idea of art that's really grappling with things that we're dealing with in our life right now, which is not to say that the escapist stuff does not, but this is more like, we're just going to go there and hopefully we'll entertain you in the process. So yeah, the, the mental illness thing was something that I had been thinking about because mental illness is in everyone's sphere in some way or another. And I felt like I knew so little about it. And like I had encountered people who suffered, but I didn't know how to help them. And so that was sort of my angle going in. And then, and then just, we were really affirmed by how many people would come forward and be like, this helped me understand my sister, or this was my experience. I've never felt seen like this before. In communities like Phoenix, Arizona, which is you know, it's not New York. It's not full of like ultra hip, ultra liberal, you know, people, but it was, you know, we were starting conversations and people were talking about things that they wouldn't have talked about otherwise. And so 
Yeah, you're right. It doesn't sound like a great idea. <laughs> well, it sounds like a difficult idea, right? Like that's right. Yeah. And so, you know, when you're sitting there and going, well, I'm assuming I'm going to start with a minor chord. That's all I got. <laughs> that's where I'm starting. I'm unhappy. There you go. Well, and then you have to sort of fight against that too. You have to sort of figure out, okay, well, this can't be like an hour and a half long slog. We have to find like the, the, the humor in it and the catharsis and, and finding ways for it not to feel like people are just being sort of oppressed the whole way through. So it's, it's thinking about the responsibility that you have to the audience. And, and I think because musical theater is an art form that tries really hard to engage its audience rather than I would say like classical composition, which I got my undergrad degree in, which is sort of like, if the audience doesn't get it, that's on them. And how dare they? (laughs) Not all classical composers, but a lot of them. So it's, it's sort of trying to find a balance of like, okay, what is, and I don't always approach it from like issues based first. So like with the Medusa story, my co-writer found the Wikipedia entry for her and the, the Ovid telling of her story, which is not really well known to people. Most people just know she's a monster. Not a lot of people know she's a victim. Um, and like perfectly encapsulated in how we have rape culture today. And so that is something that was already sort of near and dear to both of our hearts as it was, you know, starting to bubble up in the cultural milieu, but it wasn't quite, it wasn't 2017 yet. It wasn't me too. So we were like, oh my gosh, why aren't people talking about this, this story that's been around for thousands of years and people don't know the whole story and it has so much resonance now. And so that felt like a really ripe and rich subject material. Plus mythology is great because it's, it's so ancient that it's timeless and it's always relevant and you can sort of treat it however you want, sort of like Shakespeare, um, which is really fun. (laughs) So starting off with these, with these rich ideas seems to be a good way to find fertile ground, so to speak, to to, to start putting notes on a page. What happens when you don't have any ideas? What happens if somebody doesn't speak to you? Do you recuse yourself from the project? Do you delve in deeper? Do you, do you have mechanisms that you can use to find something to, to grab onto and to work with? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, right now, if an idea doesn't speak to me, I just, am, I'm going to say, you know, I, I'm going to pass on this. Thank you so much for thinking of me, that kind of thing, especially now because I've, I've sort of gotten myself into writing so many musicals simultaneously. And my current collaborators are like, when am I going to see you? <laughs> just blame the pandemic. So, yeah. <laughs> but then there's Zoom, so there's no excuse, you know. So, so it becomes a pragmatic reason right now, but in the past, it was tough because I was sort of excited by everything when I was younger, although not quite everything. It's an interesting question. Yeah. I think, I think generally if it's something that I'm not passionate about, if I, if I'm finding that out in the middle of it, I'll, I'll think hard about whether I'm able to re-engage and find my way in, or if it's, you know, wiser for me to sort of say, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. Let me help you find someone else who can. It's, it's really tough because I, I want to be working with a lot more people and with a lot more ideas than there just is time for because musicals are an incredibly time-intensive process. And speaking about the time-intensive, I mean, they require a lot of time and, and effort, but they also take a lot of time. In other words, they're not something yeah. that you turn around. You don't just write a song and go, good, I'm done. You, you know, yeah. it's, <laughs> I mean, we're talking, these, some of these projects take years to develop between the book and the lyrics and then, you know, the music and finding the the producers, finding opportunity to showcase and all these things. You can be with a show for a long time. I mean, how long has Medusa been in development? We started that one in 
the summer of 2016. So we're coming up on five years now. Yeah. So how do you stay motivated when there's something that's taking so long that you're playing with it for a while and then you move away and then you're called back to it to do some work on it and then you're like, how do you stay engaged in these projects over such a long period of time? Yeah. It's tough. And I think that something that helps me is because like we said, we are starting with such really gripping, you know, source material ideas, that kind of thing. And, and I feel like I end up growing and being able to relate to the material in a different way and and more nuanced as I get older, you know, like there was a version of Medusa at one point where like it ended with, oh yeah, now there's an army of furies and they're going to come get every man who has ever (laughs) (laughs) hurt someone, which is like a really great feeling. Um, and something that I think that society needed in, in its point of catharsis in like 2017. And now we're thinking about, okay, how can we actually move forward as a society? And like, what does restorative justice look like? And, and what does that look like in an entertaining and satisfying form in a musical? <laughs> um, that's just one broad example, but I'm seeing dancing snakes for some reason, like a, just a, a line. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's the closing number. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Nailed it. Good. Yeah. Um, And something that also helps me in my brain, I guess, is actually having several different projects to popcorn back and forth between because something will click over here that will make me think, oh, yeah, or this won't work over here, but then I can bring it over to this other thing. Um, And because I'm working with different people, I I get to benefit from all these different brains and um, it's great. And then there, like you said, there are periods of off time that end up being restful. And then I can look at the thing again a few months later with fresh eyes and be able to see new things in it. Yeah. Perspective is, is definitely helpful. I think a lot of creators, no matter what they're making, they get very focused on that one piece and they, they sort of, they lose the ability to step back because they're working Mm -hmm. really hard. I mean, it takes a lot to bring something into existence, to work on something into, and to be responsible to your collaborators. But really, if you all take a week and don't look at it, don't pay attention to it, go live, go to a movie, go binge watch a bunch of crap. It's amazing yeah. what that week off will do. You'll sit there and go, God, I just hated this piece last Thursday, but now I'm really into it. Like, this is working for me. If I just tweak this and have this, you know, you can get buried in your own work if you don't, yeah. if you don't take a break and hop out of the pool for a little while. Yeah. That's something I really fell prey to in grad school. I was sort of, I had this really mercenary attitude (laughs) of just like, I'm going to work harder than everyone else and I'm going to work longer and it's going to be great. And then I'd really wrecked myself as you can imagine. Um, and now I, I feel like I'm still recovering from that toxic like worldview because work-life balance is so important because people just exist as people and that's more important than their output in the world in a lot of ways, you know, sometimes people make pieces of art that sort of end up transcending them, but it's not your prerogative. You don't have to be the next Picasso or Beethoven or whatever, you know? And, and often I will tell myself that, oh, I'll get better ideas if I take a break as a way to trick myself into taking a break and then be like, oh yeah, I forgot there's like a world out there and I have friends (laughs) and loved ones and (laughs) so much other stuff to live for. And then you're right. It does inform and breathe new life into the creative process as well. Yeah. Yeah. I I think you really hit on something particularly interesting, which is how hard artists are on themselves and how much they put into their work that it goes unseen. It goes unrecognized. It's certainly 99% of the time goes unpaid and all these things, um, they chip away at you 
and they can make your your health, your mental health, they, they can compromise all these things. And, you know, really the only way to actually make good art of any kind is to take breaks, to live your life. Because if you haven't experienced anything, you've got nothing to write about. You have nothing to say. Yeah. I think not to be this person, but I feel like capitalism has really done a number on how we think about art and what kind of art is worthy and how how to be an artist a real quote unquote artist. It's so it's quite messed up and we could talk about that at length. But well, you yeah, know, it's, it's digital. You know, we can just talk about it right now for hours that's true. and hours <laughs> and hours. But no, it's true. The commoditization of art has yeah. put a pressure on its creation, on its sale, on its importance, and ultimately its judgment, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, if you're not a successful artist, then everybody just thinks you have a hobby. Right. Right. If you're not yeah. exclusively living off your art, you are a failure. And that just wreaks havoc with people. I and mean, people seem to forget, you know, people like Einstein. He was a patent clerk while he was Einstein. <laughs> people have day jobs sure. while they do their art. So, mm-hmm. you know, that stuff is definitely lost because we're all so obsessed with being on a 30 under 30 list. Right. You know, and, yeah. and the best art is made by people who let's be fair, have been around making art for a lot longer than, you know, the 30 under 30. Yeah. And I think by people often who are not trying to find the best, um, most monetizable subject matter or whatever. And unfortunately, that means then when most people think of musical theater, they think of like the very kitschy Broadway shows, you know, because those are the ones that have been running forever and et cetera. But if you do a little digging, like I'm so grateful to be living in New York City because I wasn't like, even though I was doing theater in high school, I wasn't like a giant theater nerd. But getting to be here and seeing some of the off-Broadway stuff that's happening and off-off-Broadway, it's so exciting. It's, it's way more exciting than a lot of stuff that's happening on Broadway. So in, in terms of a day-to-day, what does your day look like? How do you spend your time and your energy? How does a, how does a composer compose? Yeah. Uh, do you want the pre-COVID answer or the current answer? You know what? I can I, give both. Yeah, I'd like both, actually. I'd like to hear okay. you know, what it was and hopefully in some ways what it may be. And at the same time, yeah. like what you've been doing to uh, cope with all this craziness. Sure. So, I mean, no two days look the same. Um, the Broadway rehearsal schedule changes from week to week. Um, and for the shows that I play for, there's a whole team of rehearsal pianists too. So it's just sort of slotting people in where they're available um, around the other work that they're doing. So Is that because I you're rehearsing have... numbers? Like, in other words, you'll be slotted in to work with these people on this number and then another pianist will be in to work with these people on that other number. That would be easier on us, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did I just fix all of the rehearsal problems? I'm going to call my boss right now. I'll be right back. <laughs> um, it's it's mostly based on availability. So the my supervisor, who's the usually the associate music director, is in charge of scheduling everyone for the week. And so they have the rather unenviable position of asking everyone each week when they're available (laughs) and then sort of slotting people in based on both like, okay, we know this person's great for choreography rehearsals, but this person has a background in vocal pedagogy. And so they can help with like vocal problems if someone is struggling on learning a song or like getting the style nailed or whatever, things like that. And so they have to like kind of play to each pianist's strengths and also just do the pragmatic who's available when kind of thing. So we're all responsible for the whole show to the point where I I will often just like run through the entire show before I go to rehearsal just so I'm like all brushed up on tempos and stuff. Um cuz tempos are very important to dancers. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I've heard that I've heard that Hamilton 
is all set to a click track. Yes, a lot of it. Yeah. yeah. Like that's mm-hmm. but that's tough. We don't get to play with the click track in rehearsal, so we have to be really on top of oh, it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's really on you yeah. to make sure that you're rehearsing them at the right tempos. Right. I often up. just keep a metronome app on my phone there <laughs> that's like silent, but it's visible so you can see it ticking back and forth just so I know that I'm keeping myself honest. And then also if a choreographer or a dancer is like, that seems slow, then I can be like, well, it, it's it's what's marked in the music <laughs> because it's such a subjective thing anyway. It feels subjective even though it's it's not. It's so easy to not you know, do things in the same tempo just because you had coffee that day or whatever, you know, yeah. it's, I, I wish I were joking, but I do have to really cut back on the caffeine. <laughs> Everybody's rapping really fast on Hamilton this week. That's right. Yeah. They're all pissed at you. Yeah. I'm kind of curious about something that, that, that I think happens to everybody, which is mm-hmm. at a certain point as a freelancer, which you are, as somebody who is their own business, they have to get their name out there. Now you've got, obviously a pedigree at this point. You've had sure. some, some good help and you've had some good opportunity and you've made a lot out of them. I'm just kind of wondering how you get yourself out there um, and let people know who you are and what you're up to, you know, because it's it's hard to keep on telling people you're working on a show and them not really seeing that show, right? That That's really tough for people yeah. to actually grasp. So how do you let people yeah. know what you do, both in terms of musicals, but also, you know, you do stuff outside of it. You you teach, you're, you're involved with other things. How do you reach out? Yeah. Oh, what a good question. This is something that I personally am quite bad at marketing. And so a lot of it for me, where I've found success is just being a really good person to work with and like showing up prepared. And so if I make people feel comfortable in a room, that's what's there. That's what they will remember. And they'll want to work with me in the future, ideally in whatever capacity I'm doing, whether it's like a gig that I'm not getting paid enough for, or like a random improv show or, you know, what have you, or, or being in a rehearsal room with a new, you know, someone who's learning the Broadway show who just came on. Um, so that's something that I try to do as much of as I can. It's just being like a great person to work with. That's what I strive to. I'm not saying that I am. <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> Stop being so apologetic. What are you, Canadian? Oh, <laughs> I wish. I think Canadians are the best. Aww. They're so nice. Oh, shucks. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's an aspect of it. Um, because it's all it's all word of mouth, there's not a lot of promoting that you can do for yourself in terms of, at least in terms of working as a pianist from what I have seen. I, I don't really hire or recommend people who have just cold called me or whatever. I, I recommend people who I know are great to work with and I and are great, you know, musicians almost the good person thing pulls ahead for me as the factor in, in whether I'm going to recommend them. Well, when people do reach out though, I mean, cause you've got to meet some, yeah. somebody somehow. I, I mean, you're on yeah. all the social mediums, media. Yeah. Mediates. I don't know what the hell. I like called. all of them. All of them. Are you, on, so you're on them <laughs> and do you like, Oh yeah. Do you, do, do you use them to reach out to broadcast what you're doing and, and, and let people know and let, and, and for that matter, do you audition people that way? Is that how you kind of meet people and reach out as well? Yeah. Um, I do pretty much exclusively use social media to, to post things that I'm doing like, Hey, I'm, I have this show that I'm doing, or here's a video that we made of a song from one of my shows. And that's a really good way to get people if they're not able to get in the room and see it, which especially in the early stages is really hard. Just, just having that to give to people or having like an archival video of something that I can send to people if they're curious about my work. So that's, that's pretty much all that I use with social media for. I, I make jokes on Twitter sometimes, but like, 
that's about it. And I do, I, I, I totally snoop on people. Um, I see who they're friends with. And then if it's someone that I feel like I can talk to in confidence, I could say, Hey, how is this person to work with? And they, that's really helpful for me to, to form an idea of someone, because the weird thing about being a pianist slash music director, um, a music director is someone who sort of coordinates and teaches all the music to the singers and, uh, leads the band, that kind of thing. There's often only one of those in a room at a time until you get to, you know, the Broadway level where they have like that person and then that person's three subs and these ancillary people also. Um, but most of the time, the stuff that you're working on does not have that kind of a budget. And so it's really, it's rare that you get to see someone actually in action if it's someone that you're trying to recommend. I was lucky with NYU because a lot of my classmates were also music directors. And so we were we were all singing and playing on each other's pieces to present them. And so that was really helpful. Then I could see, okay, I really like this person's style and they're responsible, (laughs) whatever. But yeah, I do. I do watch people's, I see how they interact with people. I see if they've posted any of their, their work and things like that. And that does help me form an opinion. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting that, um, with music you're either part of, or you're trying to form a team, you know, I mean, this, these are people that you are for lack of a better term, you're getting into bed with them because making music together is really making music together. And it's yeah. very hard with people that you don't jive with outside of music. And you yeah. know, if you hate somebody, you're gonna you're not you're not gonna jive musically. It's just it's just the reality of it. And that's why bands break up. So to be able to find good people, whether it's through referral or through research, must be awfully mm-hmm. helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's like a music contractor's most difficult aspect of their job is like when they're putting together Broadway pits, the music contractors are the people who sort of decide who's going to play all together. And um, sometimes it has ended up pretty disastrous. So there are shows that have been running now for decades where like the drummer has the drum, the plexiglass drum shield, but then he papers it over with newspaper. So he doesn't have to look at the bassist, like (laughs) insane stuff like that because they, you know, they didn't jive in the beginning, but they want to put their kids through college. So they're just going to tough it out, but it's like so toxic. (laughs) That's tough to have a toxic rhythm section. Yeah. That's pretty tough. You gotta, you gotta be pretty damn confident in your abilities to stay together. If you're going to, if you're going to block visual, that's pretty tough. Yeah. So tell me, what kind of advice do you have for somebody who wants to be a pianist, be in music theater, be a music director? Yeah. Um, I would say it's helpful to be involved in, if you go to college, um, that's my experience. So I'll speak to the college experience. And that is just like, get yourself involved in as many spheres as you can. I learned so much from accompanying all of my friends and their voice lessons where I could basically take a free voice lesson just by listening. And I was getting paid to, to be there and be their pianist. That was great. And, and just taking advantage of all of those opportunities. People are so eager to teach you when you're a college student and you should just like soak it up and, basically be the architect of your own curriculum because every school will fall short in some way and bureaucracy is terrible. And (laughs) (laughs) sometimes they'll be like pioneering new curriculum curricula that are not great and they're still figuring it out. And you have to sort of like deal with that. And then you have to go and like trot over to another department and be like, Hey, can I be involved in this? Or, you know, ask your friends what they're doing and just find ways to get the most out of your experience and be proactive about it. Because, yeah, your your school experience 
is largely determined by the school environment, but not totally. And I feel like the things that I learned the most from were like conversations with my professor who subbed in Broadway shows or, you know, like the staff pianist from the theater department, like sat with me in a pop rock class and taught me how to play pop rock on piano when accompanying people. And just things like that are incredibly valuable and not part of the curriculum at all. And so just like trying to seek out and being open to those opportunities is really, really helpful. So Rachel, where can people find out more about you? Uh, you can look at my website, which is racheldeanmusic.com. And that from there, you should be able to check out all of the musicals that I'm working on. You won't see me playing a Broadway show anytime soon, unfortunately, but hopefully one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing with us how you make a living. Thanks so much for having me. Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on the show, visit makingalivingshow.com and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>